Excellent. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Mount Sinai Health Partners podcast. I'm Rob Fields, uh, Senior Vice President and CMO for Population Health here at Mount Sinai. Um, super excited today. Uh, I have my friend Stella Sappho here with us and Serena Lair uh, from IHI is here with us also. Um, thanks for joining us today, you guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So we're going to have a really fun conversation about, uh, and timely, I think, conversation about uh, the, the world around us in terms of disparities pre-post-COVID and maybe some ways to take action uh, for all of us in healthcare and how to connect those things. So I'm excited to dive in, but um, it would be helpful to know a little bit about you guys. Um, I don't know who wants to start, Sally, you want to start and tell us a sure. little bit about your, and the jingling in the background is, uh, are my dog, so I apologize, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll work with it. So I'm so glad to be back um, talking with you on the podcast, Rob. Um, I had the pleasure of speaking with you a little over a year ago when I was working wow. for you. Yeah. Um, so I'm Stella Sappho. <laughs> I'm HIV primary care um, doctor practice here at Sinai West. And um, I am super happy to be back um, with the Sinai family, worked with Rob as a senior um, medical director in clinical transformation for a few years before I joined the premier um, incorporated team working on um, healthcare improvement as their lead of research. Um, And now work with premier as a part-time consultant as a strategic advisor. Um, But my kind of real passion that I'm here for today is I've had the pleasure um, of working with Sarenya and others um, on an initiative called Vote Health 2020, which we'll be talking about, which is really focused on mobilizing the vote within our healthcare spaces. Um, and, you know, as someone who is a West African immigrant, um, as a Black woman, you know, there's this, this election, you know, the urgency of now couldn't be more great. Um, and so it, it's, it's great to be here as a doctor, as a citizen, as a human on this planet at this time, Absolutely. I think there's just so much that's happening that, 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 you know, I'm excited for us to talk about. Awesome. Serena. Thank you, Rob. I'm also excited to be here. I am uh, the head, my day job, I guess you would say, <laughs> is the head of innovation at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I do have a background in medicine, public health and organizing. Uh, although while I was in medical school, I, started to see that pretty profound disconnect between what you know you're supposed to do and how you can help Mm -hmm. your patients and then the system within which you're meant to do it. Um, And so that led to uh, a lot of exploration on my part. And so I ended up doing my MD, doing my uh, master's in public health and working in uh, at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, which is based in Boston. We use improvement science to and methods to improve health and healthcare worldwide. So I've been there about nine years now. Um, and more recently, as Stella has noted, um, we've kind of come together around a shared purpose and passion related to voting and ensuring uh, everyone has the ability to register to vote and to vote safely uh, in 2020. Sounds amazing. Uh, I'm a massive IHI fan. I've been to several of the international and national conferences and have a uh, have used your material for years now. So it's a special pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Rob. I will say Vote Health 2020 was in large part motivated by a keynote mm. at the IHI forum that mm. Don, Dr. Don Berwick, who's the founder sure. of IHI in 2019, gave a keynote that sparked sparked this whole movement. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, he's, he's definitely one of those folks that has sparked a lot of things and people to take some action in different ways. So, 
Um, awesome. Well, it's great to have you on. I, I think, um, you know, starting from what drives both of you, I think we were talking earlier about, you know, we, we all come from different paths, even though we end up in the same place and, and are driven by different things. But I, I hope it's no secret to anyone listening that, that racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare are very real um, and have profound effects on all sorts of levels, certainly on individuals, but on, on populations, communities, et cetera. Um, can we talk a little bit from, from both of your perspectives, actually coming from the, the, from different places, how you have seen that in your worlds play out even pre COVID and we'll get to COVID in a minute, but in a minute, but pre COVID, how have you seen that play out in your respective areas? Whoever wants to go first. So, I'll go just because I was talking a little bit about Don um, yeah. and the and the forum because it, this is what brought me to the work. So in 2019, in December of 2019, Don put out a call to action in one of his keynotes uh, that he calls the moral determinants of health, and really highlighting what you what you've mentioned, Rob. And I know that you and Stella see deeply every day in your, with your patients and communities around the work that all in the healing professions need to do to really impact health and well-being at scale. And he charged us, as he always does, with four seemingly simple actions, which were everybody needs to write, speak, work, and vote. And I was in the audience and I was listening and I thought, yeah, you know, I, I do all those things, pat myself on the back and and. But I started to think about I started to think about the voting one more in particular, and I was struck by a couple of things, which is even pre-COVID, what I know just based on my work at IHI and my work with in engaging healthcare organizations and health professionals, even pre-COVID, healthcare was the number one issue on so many voters' minds, time and time again over the past ten years, and yet those that are so directly involved in either delivering healthcare or receiving healthcare are often not engaged in influencing the policies and practices that, you know, engaging policies right. and practices. Right. I didn't, I didn't realize that in 2019, that in the 2016 election, that a hundred million people who were eligible to vote didn't vote. And I know that this data is, is old, but that doctors tend to vote even less than the general population. Wow. I actually had no idea. Yeah. So, so this data, and, I, and I'll, we can share the, the paper that came out from some folks at Penn, based on data, again, it was about 20 years ago, and I was looking for new data. And while a paper hasn't come out recently, it's been interesting. Most people that we talk to say, yeah, no, I believe that. I believe that, that, you know, doctors and others kind of don't think that their vote, they don't have time or they don't think their vote matters. I think for many of the patients that we're seeing, it's a little bit different. Um, There's lots of different barrier, you know, there's, while health professionals might choose not to vote for various reasons, I think it's also made harder for certain populations and people to vote, which I, you know, I think we'll, we'll get into, um, we'll get into at some point. And then I'll I'll just say one more piece, which is there's the aspect of, I know that there's a lot of interest right now because there's a presidential election and that can go both ways. That can really motivate people. And it can also feel like, well, I can never really influence who the president is. I think the past few months have really shown us elections matter, how much 
in my town, in small town in New Hampshire, debating whether or not we're going to have a mask mandate, who's on the school board, who right. our local sheriffs are, who our prosecutors are. So um, I think we're seeing it's a very, very interesting time to be, uh, especially for health professionals, to be thinking about this and, and thinking about how to be more civically engaged. And it's a good point when you think about disparities aren't just a federal problem, right? It's a local problem. It, it's all the way through. It permeates at the federal level, but it per, it's clearly present at the community level. So if you're not paying attention to those elections too and what's happening there, then you're you're missing it. You're you're only getting a, you know, probably a less direct part of the pie. I imagine if you're only because I, mean, I, I know people that are only only vote during presidential election years and don't right. vote in primaries or in between years, and you're. See, hearing what you're saying, I mean, you're, you're missing the boat, it feels like, if you're not paying attention to those issues. Yeah, and Rob, that's exactly right. I think that there's something in there. When I read that statistic, that doctors vote less than lawyers, mm. it really wow. struck me because I thought, well, we <laughs> argue that lawyers... We can't lose to the lawyer, Stella. You know right? how we feel about lawyers. <laughs> even just practically, right? You can, you can think, okay, well, lawyers are voting because they're in the you know, courts every day seeing the impact of these policies. Yeah. And then I thought, but doctors are too. When, when in your neighborhood, you're dealing with people who are, you know, coming in, having chronic health conditions exacerbated by, you know, the microaggressions of racism, the micro and macroaggressions of a racist mm-hmm. society. When, you know, you're having people who are struggling because their families are incarcerated or surgeons that are seeing, you know, young people with gunshot wounds. Mm-hmm. We are seeing all of the effects of what it looks like when these policies, you know, that politicians and others enact have real impact on, on individuals. And I think it, what hasn't translated, and it was interesting because there was just a conversation on this on um, social media recently, where some folks were saying, well, doctors should just doctor. They should just take care of their patients and that should be it. Why are they talking about some of these other issues? Wow. And I think was that we, a doctor saying that? Yeah, it was a group of doctors. And I think what was radical, what has been radical about COVID, I think, you know, you mentioned health disparities before. We've had health disparities since the beginning of this country, right? Sure, right. Um, and they have, they have the really seminal articles around the ways um, that health disparities play into individuals presenting with um, MIs. And, mm-hmm. you know, black mm-hmm. individuals tend to get to the cath lab slower. Mm-hmm. Or in my own residency, I remember the feelings around treating individuals with sickle cell. Um, and what that would look like when certain patients ask for opioids versus certain other patients. And those mm-hmm. are implicit ways in which we transfer mm-hmm. that, you know, some patients deserve certain kinds of medications and others don't because they're drug seeking or not. Even the disparities around how we've approached, you know, um, opi- the opioid crisis, you know, in the eighties when it was mainly black and brown people, it was the war on crime. And now we're talking about rehab and, you know, um, as we should be, as we should have been before. And so should I have been think doing it all along. Yeah. Exactly. I think that those disparities have always existed. And I think to the point I made earlier about lawyers and doctors, what COVID has done is it's shaken clinicians, all clinicians, out of the sense of like, well, I just do my doctoring thing and I'm done. Um, they walk outside of the hospital after they've treated their COVID patients and they see people not wearing masks because their governors have told them not to. And they think, how do I change this? I have a mandate to do something. And I think you know, the beauty of what we are talking about now, which is one form of civic engagement among many, voting is just one of many that we can do. Mm-hmm. Um, the beauty of what we're talking about now is saying, you know, you're doctoring and you as an advocate and you as a clinician providing care, it, there's a space for it within the walls of the hospital and your clinic. And there's, there's a, a need for it even outside of that. Voting is being one tool that we must use. Stella, you, you mentioned in your intro 
you're an HIV primary care physician. And if, I mean, HIV in and of itself, you know, on top of racial and ethnic disparities, but even yeah. HIV as a condition has driven disparities in, in all sorts of ways. And uh, even from the beginning, I mean, think about the HIV in the early 80s. I mean, certainly things have progressed, thankfully, but still there are issues there. Can, can you just even, it's a, probably its own conversation, its own podcast, and there are books written about it. But if you can just give a little, folks a little bit of a flavor of what you see, how you see disparities playing out in that population in particular. I mean, it, it's something that keeps me up at night when I think about the COVID vaccine coming. So mm -hmm. we know that when HIV, um, when we had the first trials for HIV in the setting of not having any, you know, good viable medications, the individuals who were able to get on those were higher socioeconomic levels, tended to be white. Um, when the medications came out, mm -hmm. we saw the individuals who predominantly had access, again, those same classes, and not to even speak about the global South and North, you know, we didn't get over to developing nations until many, many years later. Um, and then now we've seen it when it comes to um, pre-exposure prophylaxis with PrEP. And I will, I will never forget this. When I was doing my HIV fellowship, I had a young man who was, I believe, 16 or 17, who um, had just been diagnosed with HIV. He mm -hmm. was um, a black American. And um, his, the first time he had sex was the first time he got HIV. And he, um, wow. we, we were talking about, you know, everything. And, and um, he had just learned about PrEP. He didn't know about PrEP before. No one had ever talked to him him about it. And I remember that one of the things that really stood out to me in the conversation is he said, you know, I wish someone had told me because this could have changed my life. And at the very same time that I was having that conversation with him, I was doing clinical shifts in Chelsea, where many of my patients are, you know, white, white Americans, and most of them were on prep. We're on and it prep. was just such a, yeah, you know, like, it was such a stark indication of, you know, the power of access to, you know, um, information mm -hmm. and what that does and the outcomes that it can have for your life. And so I think about that now as it relates to COVID, because if we get a vaccine that is safe and viable, there's a real question around, you know, who will have access? How will we make sure that the individuals who are most at risk, because we know COVID affects black and brown people disproportionately in terms of mortality rate, um, how will we make sure that a safe vaccine gets to those populations with some priority. Mm -hmm. And I think exactly to your point, those disparities we see in certain conditions like HIV, um, you know, my fear is that they'll be played out again and again as mm -hmm. we go forward with dealing with this pandemic. And I, I want to maybe just, just think about or have you guys respond to, um, to this before we get into the COVID piece. Um, you know, I one of the things that this conversation has really shined a light on uh, conversations like this have shined a light on over the last couple of months, you know, as most things have occurred, it seems like since the murder of George Floyd and when things sort of uh, amplified in terms of the conversation and, and the sense of urgency, you know, obviously it should have happened hundreds of years ago, but here we are. Um, but since that time, there's also been a lot of conversation about the role of healthcare in in systemic racism, and you know conversations like Henrietta Lacks and uh, and Tuskegee, and oh gosh, you know, think about medical education. Uh, there's been a lot of conversation, even within Sinai, but it's not unique to Sinai. It's across all of medical education. You know, the three of us went through medical school. It's no secret that probably in each of our medical schools when we rotate through certain rotations that the medical students see our uh, Medicaid patients, which are, you know, often we know from, from payer mix and demographics that it's disproportionately people of color, um, that we are 
that you know, they get the residents and medical students and then the quote unquote faculty practice is generally well to do white folks. Um, that's, that's true everywhere. And it's sort of a dirty little secret in medical education. Um, and, and then, you know, again, the, the more, even more, maybe that one's more sinister because it's a little more hidden and not talked about as much, but then there are more, the more obvious things and the dark side of medical history and medical education, like we just talked about. Um, have you, in your respective roles and uh, in environments, are, are you hearing more conversation around those issues too, about how to really change the face of medical education, medical research, those kinds of things? I'll say in, in my role at IHI, we've seen and committed to an enormous amount in this space, I would say in the past five or six years. Mm-hmm. It is, if you look at the six dimensions of quality that the, what was then known as the Institute of Medicine, uh, the six dimensions were safe, timely, efficient, effective, equitable, and person-centered. And equity, we often kind of highlight, is, was the forgotten or sort of not focused on aim or dimension of quality for a very long time. And we increasingly, as we were trying to do our work and create impact at scale, mm-hmm. realize you cannot do that work without an intentional and rigorous and disciplined focus around equity. And so for the, so even IHI, we're going through our own journey about what it means, what does equity mean and how does it Mm-hmm. manifest within our own organization and how we show up and then how does it manifest in our partnerships with our with those we serve which are primarily healthcare leaders and healthcare organizations and health professionals and I'll just I just want to mention one group that I, I actually am enormously proud of um, I get to support a group called the Leadership Alliance it's it's uh, leaders of 50 around 50 US healthcare organizations in the country for the past three years, they have, they demanded and have been leading equity work groups to share and learn with one another about what achieving health equity looks like and how that can be operationalized. They developed a call to action sort of with commitments about what they would do as advocates, what they would do as leaders within their own, in, own organizations and institutions, and what they would do um, as partners in community. And this year in particular, we've each one of them as a, they, and they themselves decided, if you wanna be a part of this work group, you have to have two specific aims that you are actively working on. You have to have at least one aim with a how much, with and for whom, and by when, like let's get serious and specific at least one aim that is related to dismantling institutional racism within your organization. And the second aim that you have to have is to eliminate an inequity in a care outcome. And that is the price of admission into that work group where they're, they're one trying to figure out how to do that and you know, what's working, what's not, you know, where to look for ideas the other is also a space for them to understand what it means to grow in that space. When they look internally, we ask them to, to look at your community demographics and then match that to the demographics of your organization all the way up to your board. And unsurprisingly, what we'll notice is the farther up you get, the more white and male it is. And mm-hmm. so 
what is their role, many of whom are white leaders who deeply care and are committed to this, they're also trying to figure out. So what do, how do we lead in this space and how do we use our power to enact change? I think that's tremendous because I think yeah. that that's an example of leading from the ground up. And, you know, Rob, when you mentioned some of the challenges of things like the faculty versus the residency practice, it made me think that a lot of times the attention to an issue like that comes from groups that we think are groups that may identify themselves as not having power. So, for example, at Sinai, it was talked about from medical students. Medical students said, you know, what is this? Why is this happening? Why is it this way? Right. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's a really important point there. Oftentimes when we think about who carries power, we think about the board, the CEO, the executive, mm -hmm. the leaders. And I think, you know, one thing that Vote Health 2020 has really inspired me to just remember is that the power of the masses will never go away. Right. You know, when a whole bunch of Sinai students raised their voices and said, you know, let's talk about what's going on with this. It led to other institutions saying, wow, what are we doing? Like, do we have these similar practices? Right. Um, you know, and I think Saranya mentioned with this you know, leadership academy, it's something really interesting about if you plant individuals within these spaces to ask the questions. It can lead to the conversations and movements that I think could be really, really powerful. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that in Book Hall 2020 of, you know, individual clinicians saying, I'm going to register my patients. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to get my patients registered to vote. And then the clinic saying, well, okay, if you're doing that, how does that, you know, how, how can we support it? What right. else can we do? You know, and I think that there's something in here about the collective to bring transparency to some of these issues. Um, that are kind of dirty little secrets in, in medicine. And I think it's important for us three to just say, yes, medicine has been complicit in this country's history Absolutely. of you know, institutional racism. And, and now is the time. Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and so many others before, their, their kind of blood is on our hands to raise our voices and start and continue to like do the right thing. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and before, I, I know we're anxious to, to talk about Vote Health 2020, and we will for sure. But um, if we can talk about COVID for a minute because of the timeliness of it, that 2020 has been such a bizarre year in so many ways. Uh, so we started with the pandemic and then the the very public playing out of these murders. And, and to your point, Stella, this is this is not new, but certainly the public attention to it and perhaps maybe on a, on a positive way, the activism towards it is certainly has seems to have a different energy than it has in a long time. Um, but the COVID specifically, I mean, if, if you don't know about this, if you're listening, unfortunately, you're not probably paying attention, uh, but uh, it highlighted some pretty dramatic disparities um, that already existed, exacerbated them because of the stressors on, on the system. You, you, I imagine both of you have different perspectives on that as well, just coming from where you're, you know, you're coming from. Um, and, and as I do as well, I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, the, the COVID-specific re related disparities and um, how that's how you view them or how it's impacted your work. Go ahead, Stella. So I think that um, for me, the thing that kind of struck me, you know, in New York, we were hit so hard and there mm -hmm. was a lot of early data that just tried to understand who was getting infected more and more. And, I, and the, the kind of um, the maps that came out that, that mapped out by zip code who was infected with COVID by the number of service workers that were in those zip codes mm -hmm. by um, areas where socioeconomic levels were lower. I mean, it was, it was like 
you know, you were tracing these maps. Wherever you could find, I think, higher, um, and, and they really ran rampant in our Hispanic communities, but higher um, numbers of individuals in crowded settings, I mean, you would see these numbers really rise. And so just, just demographically, I think, I, um, I, I, it, it, was, it was very interesting to see how COVID reflected what we always know, which is that certain groups get hit harder by these pandemics. Um, when I was talking with, with a lot of my patients who ended up having to, to stay, you know, a lot of folks left New York, a lot of individuals just left if they could, right. um, and blessed their hearts if they could. Many individuals who stayed said that the things that they had to do to make sure that they were safe were pretty radical. Like there were individuals that I had who were afraid to leave their homes ever because their elevators would often, um, you know, get 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 messed up. And the things that they would do if their elevators were was broken for the day, they'd hang out on the corner until the elevator got fixed, and then they'd go back. But they couldn't do that, and so now they're in their house just stuck, right? And I, for for me, I think the thing that I realize is what does it mean when you ask people to shelter in place if they don't have a community that they can rely on? Right. You know, if they have to have a job that they have to go to, they're going to have to go and they're gonna get COVID and we're gonna see the impact of that. So kind of just as a citizen of New York, seeing those demographics map out to, you know, um, minority communities having higher rates. And as a clinician, seeing what was happening with my patients who were telling me, you know, I live in a house with three or four other people. There's nothing that I can do if they're sick, I'm right. sick. Right. Um, it's just really brought it, brought, brought it home to bear for me of just what it means when you have certain um, socioeconomic differences that are so implicit. Like New York really is a tale of two cities. Mm -hmm. Half the city left and has been safe and the other half stayed and, you know, was so deeply impacted. So, so it just, it, it really, it was something that I really felt kind of professionally and personally. Yeah, Stella, that's, um, and I just actually really do want to say to both of you who are in New York City and who are health professionals serving patients, I also just want to say thank you um, because I, I saw it play out, um, which is a tough place. You know, you're, you're, think, you're seeing so much of this um, and feeling a bit helpless, which, again, is part of what fueled Vote Health 2020. But I was seeing it from a couple of, and my, I was seeing it from a couple of different angles. The first was most of the people I serve at IHI are health professionals. My husband is a surgeon. My parent, you know, my mom is a family practice. You know, she's still practicing at the VA down in Florida. Um, and I was seeing these, all of you, but all these health professionals, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, so going to work every single day in these unknown and really challenging and scary circumstances and just going into work and doing their job for their patients and for their community and for their peers. And I saw us also not authorize the Defense Production Act fully to get PPE. It was one of the things that I just, it kept me up at night because I also was thinking about, I wasn't just thinking about my own personal friends and family, I was thinking about all the people that IHIs meant, you know, not all, but we primarily meant to serve, which are healthcare providers. And all these people I've gotten to know who are going into these circumstances to do their jobs. And we cannot even provide them with the security around masks and gloves to keep them safe. And I just, it was, I, you know, I, I still don't really have the words to both describe my gratitude to you and, you know, everybody out there that was doing that and my fury at how little 
we did when we had the ability to get PPE and other things that healthcare workers needed, how little we did to make that happen. That you had, you know, people negotiating, you had states negotiating against private practice. You had doctors like Dr. Megan Rainey create Get Us PPE, taking it into their own hands to secure PPE, not only for the, themselves, but for others. That's a, that's a consequence of policy and practice. Um, and that matters. So that was, so one, one extreme, that's sort of how I experienced it. And then on the other extreme, there's, there's three. So that was one. Another is, it was also thinking about the role that healthcare organizations and healthcare leaders have. So as Stella is noting how many essential workers, there's a lot of essential workers that work in healthcare um, and work in healthcare organizations who, it, it is shocking to healthcare organizations when they look at what, I always ask them, what percent of your own employees do not make the local living wage? There's a easy MIT living wage calculator, you know, free online. And they're shocked by how many of their own employees are not making a living wage. How many of their own employees are on food stamps or, um, uh, you know, being sent to collections around healthcare charges. So don't have paid sick leave. So it was really also an opportunity for healthcare organizations to examine their own policies and practices and then I think bringing it down to the individual healthcare provider level right now in the context of COVID, the other thing we're seeing a lot in Vote Help 2020 is, is, is twofold. One is uh, people going to their providers and saying, can I vote in person? Like, is that okay? Is that safe? Or what do you think I should do? And providers wanting to know, like doctors and nurses and others wanting to know, what should I say to them? Like, I'm trying to think of, you know, where's the evidence and are there talking points? The other is people looking at their, you know, looking at their patients, some of whom are immunocompromised or at risk, and they themselves are just feeling really worried about how their patients are going to vote and whether they can vote safely. So those are a couple of the ways that I've sort of seen and COVID manifest both in policy and in practice at the federal and then at the local level and then at the, at the level of interaction between patient and provider. Mm-hmm. So let's dig into that a little bit. You know, the motivation, because I'm hearing some of that in, in both of your comments, the, the motivation behind Vote Health 2020 and, and starting that, um, given all the context that we've discussed over the last several minutes, uh, I know from our earlier conversation, again, what drove both of you to sort of think about this also comes from different places. So uh, Saren, let me, let's start with you. Like, well, tell me about your motivation based on the things that you just said to, to really in, make that, that tangible connection between healthcare and voting as a form of, of social activism. So I didn't actually start out to create something. I was looking for something to join. I'm not sure if that's like a good thing to say, but just it's, a, <laughs> it's an honest thing, right? Like I also, like I've got a full-time job. You know, so I was like, right. all right, well, I'm going to, I'd like to join something. I'd like to, you you know, take some of my, my talents and assets and passions and, and right. direct them somewhere. And there's a lot of really great stuff happening. Um, I know one of your, you know, Northwell Health, also in New York yeah. City, you know, yeah. they're, they're doing some great work. Um, 
with a group called Patient Voting, which is based in, um, which was created by Dr. Kelly Wong, who's an ER doc at Brown. And what she saw was patients who were hospitalized, who needed emergency ballots. This was back in the, tw- the midterms. Um, and figuring out, oh, gosh, well, how do we help them? So there was all these people doing different things. And what felt missing was, a, was community, to actually create a space where people who were, in particular health professionals, who are really passionate about civic engagement of their profession and also those they serve, a community where they could come together to share, to learn, and to collaborate. And so that's how this got started. And with folks like, like Stella and some of our other, um, other co-founders, we just wanted to create that space for a couple of reasons. One is, very clearly, we want more people. To, it is nonpartisan, so we are not telling anybody who to vote for and how to vote and why they should vote. That's not for us to say. If you want to vote, we want to help you make sure that you can register to vote and that you can vote as safely as possible this, you know, uh, this season, this fall, and also in the future. So be out, out, very outcome-oriented, so new registrations and new absentee ballot requests. It also then, so that if that's an outcome, it's also, well, how do you get there? And there's a lot of tools and resources that already exist and movements that we can direct people to. There's also a lot that doesn't, and so we can build that together. We can be a space that is creative and curious and courageous, and we can collaborate to make some of these uh, things happen in our own institutions, in our communities, in our individual interactions, whether they're with our peers, with our patients, with our, you know, fellow churchgoers, you know, whatever it is. So, um, that's why we started this. It's growing every day. There's new people coming with new, uh, with just wanting to get involved in stuff we're already doing, or they've come with a new idea that they want to find someone to help collaborate. So it's been, it's been fantastic. And I know we'll get into a couple of the specific ways people are engaging, but yeah. let me turn things over to Stella. I mean, I think that's exactly it. Like doctors are, you know, for better or worse, it has a great impact if your doctor is telling you to do something. And just like we tell our people, right, wear your seatbelt, you know, watch how much alcohol you're consuming. I think if you also are like, hey, are you registered to vote? Um, like my patients love it. They're like, you know, they, they sometimes <laughs> tend to get right into, I want to, you know, they get into their politics and you just steer right back. Well, I'm so glad that you're registered. Um, do you want to check just to make sure that everything is all set? And then that's the other thing, the number of times where, you know, if you sit with someone and you have them just check their registration status, they realize that something is off. Oh my gosh, they're not registered or, you know, and so just, just verifying it has been like a function that I found has been really, really important. And I think, you know, um, Rob, I think one of the things that we're really excited about is exactly this idea of like crowdsourcing mm-hmm. what works. And so every time you present at a clinic or a health system, they tell us things that we can then share with our partners mm-hmm. about things that are kind of like, to me, radical. Like, you know, we have a partner um, in the Midwest that has created smart phases within Epic that will, will help them, will help to prompt them to remember to ask a patient about voting and then we'll document that they did so that in future they know that it's been covered. Oh, interesting. Yeah. How awesome is that? Like, yeah. And it really does incorporate it into medical care delivery the way that right. you know, is ideal. Um, and, and there's all kinds of ideas just like that. And so I think it, 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 there really is something about this, a community that's coming together to really leverage our power because we have power as clinicians in healthcare 
um, and to help our patients with the trust that they put into, you know, into us as their health professionals to civically engage in this way as one of many ways that I know people are out there kind of trying to make their voices heard. Specifically, what are those ways if somebody wanted to get involved and uh, what are the action items and, and maybe next steps? Sure. So you can go to our website, <laughs> VoteHealth2020.com, uh, and I'm sure we'll, and you know you can you can contact any of us. Or we're also on Twitter and on you know with the same handle. There are a lot of tools and resources that we have um, that we can also customize to different care settings. So I'll just name you know it can be also as simple or as um, involved as, as people want, right? So it, it could be as simple as just checking your own registration status and, you know, or registering or requesting your absentee ballot and asking people to do the same. It is putting it on your, putting it on your homepage or in your email signature. It's sending out information to your networks, you know, newsletters, social media. It's giving presentations or including a slide in any of your presentations or webinars or orientations that you're doing. These med students at, at, at Penn for the MS1 orientation, so these uh -huh. new med student orientations, they, they showed up and they said, all right, then they you know, put up a slide that had the QR codes on there and said, yeah. okay, you're all here. You, you might have moved from somewhere else. Everyone, right now, we're going to take five minutes and we're going to make sure we're registered or getting our absentee ballot and just getting that done. Wow. You know, like 40 people in a matter of just minutes, you know, by, by just that simple action. Um, and then there's a lot of flyers and, and things like that that you can put up in high traffic areas for staff and for patients. Um, and then it's the it's also the getting creative part. So as Stella said, it was, you know, putting it, embedding it in the EMR, and then it also gets printed out on your discharge, you know, on mm -hmm. your, you know, after clinic on visit or discharge papers. It's, it's folks doing this um, kind of a flu campaign. So, okay, we're trying to get everyone to, to get their flu shot. So how do we then, while they're waiting to get their flu shot, also make sure that they're registered to vote uh, or requesting their absentee ballot while they're at it. So um, there's a lot of creative ways that people are, are and that's also part of the fun uh, and joy, I think, of this, of this work. Um, I'm an improvement person, so of course I'm looking at data. <laughs> we are very privileged with the, that we are working with the nonpartisan not-for-profit vote.org. So we're able to kind of track our progress to see if we're um, actually increasing the number of registrations and absentee ballot requests. And all of the resources that we have can also be customized. So the medical students in Florida, for example, wanted to have a competition with one another to see which school could get um, as many, uh, which school would get more registrations and absentee ballot requests. So we're able to create customized resources um, to help on the back end understand, well, one, to help. I guess I forgot how com competitive doctors are, but um, <laughs> always, right? it's, always, it's, always, it's, always the, it's always the doctors and the medical, you know, we work with public health and, sure. and nursing and so you work with a lot of different folks, but it's always the medical students and the doctors who like want to turn this into a competition, but you know, whatever. Doesn't get more type A. And so whatever motivates, um, right. So we have those, we have those abilities to, to create those customized um, tools and resources to help understand how your efforts are contributing to increasing registration, absentee ballot requests. And then importantly, it also helps us think about and learn together as a community, what, feel, what are some of the most highly effective or high leverage ways to get these registration and absentee ballot requests? Um, 
for now and for the future when there's limited time and resources and, and funding, it's an opportunity for us to learn as a community about what works and what mm-hmm. doesn't in what context. Stella, anything to add? I would just say the goal in all of this, because it, there's a myopic goal and then there's kind of this, you know, what, what we hope for the future. Uh, we definitely want as many people, and I say this for New York, New Yorkers in particular, where I'm practicing, people think, well, I live in a blue state, what's the point? I live in a red state, what's the point? The popular vote in this election and in all elections really matters. Your local vote really matters. Yeah, the last two, right? Every single vote. Yeah, every yeah. single vote is so, so key. But I think um, one of the things, you know, so we say with Vote Health that we are focusing on, um, you know, within the healthcare setting, getting out the vote for patients, for our peers, and for our communities. We just talked about a lot of the ways for our patients and our communities, communities being, you know, our, our neighborhoods that we live in, our health systems, but then also for our peers. One thing that we found is really important is that there are structural barriers to um, clinicians being able to vote if you don't have early voting. And so we're talking to people about what is your voting plan? Can you get coverage? Can you have someone hold your pager while you go? You know, if you feel safe doing it, can you request your absentee ballot and drop it off at your election office, you know, and make sure that your vote is counted? And so just that peer function as well is really important. And the hope, the kind of long-term goal with this, Rob, is that, you know, we're starting to build a muscle of civic engagement within our healthcare uh, systems and among our healthcare colleagues that feels just Um, like you would administer a PHQ-9, right? Like Mm -hmm. you are, this is just a part of how you treat your patient because your whole patient isn't just their kind of diseases. It's also their social determinants of health. And those are often impacted by the policies. policies, Exactly. And so I think there's a real movement that we want to build that creates a sense of this is just how we practice medicine. This Mm -hmm. is just part of your holistic medical care. Um, and I think, I think that this is, you know, certainly the, the urgency of COVID, the urgency of these elections is helping it. But beyond this, come November 4th, we're going to keep going just as much. Yeah. We'll have to change the name of the website then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we already have some other no- domains. Listen, I am, not a tech, I, am not a tech, I am not a tech person. And vote health, various permutations of vote health were not available. The vote health 2020 was. I, I also have to say, I didn't know... Uh, well, one, I'm just a bit of a Luddite, so there's that. But two, <laughs> I didn't know how I was. I didn't know how deeply and passionately people would feel about this and about sure. building this community and a movement. I didn't know that at the time. I certainly know that now, and so we've got lots of other domains that we're looking at to buy <laughs> that uh, are that, that are past uh, past November third or past 2020 for sure. Ooh, awesome. All right, as we close, I'm going to give you guys both an opportunity. So you figure, you know, just like, just like in patient care, there are those patients that are, well, I hate the word compliant, but I'll just use it for now because it's the easiest one to think about. They will do whatever you tell them, quit smoking, they quit smoking tomorrow, lose 10 pounds or lose 10 pounds tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And in this case, you're going to have physicians that already buy into what you're, what you're selling here, right? That are already active uh, in, in, uh, in social justice efforts, policy efforts, however way they want to be active. But then there are a whole slew of folks that are like the physicians, Stella, you referenced earlier that say, I just want to be a doctor, take care of my patients and go home. So I'm going to give you guys as we close some time to convince those folks that might be listening to figure out why they should care to get involved in whatever way way they feel that they should get involved. I think that uh, what I would say to those clinicians is, Thank you for taking care of your patients. I think that that remains at the heart of what we do in medicine. And so, you know, if, if that's where you are, um, 
good and you know we'll take it because you are showing up you know there's a great amount of cynicism in this country where i think people are just kind of giving up on so many different levels um and so if all you can do is show up and take care of your patients that is something um but i would just ask those individuals to think about you know that that kind of i think about them as like my tough patients the patients that i kind of reflect on you know Mm -hmm. um and to think about that patient um for me, it was a it was an individual who um, went to jail because the woman who he thought gave him HIV, he attacked her with um, with a baseball bat and mm. uh, almost beat her to death. And he went to jail for several years. Um, and um, one of the things that I struggled with with him was just having the the kind of language to be able to talk to him about the things that led to him being infected. You know, but his experience within the prison system. And I just I just didn't have the language. I didn't know how to engage with him mm-hmm. in a way to be engaged with. I mean, that was my tough patient. And I think, you know, if, if, if medicine didn't just see itself as just the care of these conditions, these disease states, maybe I would have reached out to, you know, someone who understands kind of that realm a little bit more and have those conversations to be able to, again, treat him as a whole person, I think a little bit better than I could. He, unfortunately, um, you know, has since kind of passed on, he's passed on. But, um, you know, I think about kind of that patient and the care that I could have given to him. And I think, you know, for those doctors that are still kind of, you know, just where they are, think about your tough patients and think about the fact that what we're talking about here is really asking you to look beyond your clinic walls and to think about who else you're partnering with and what are the tools you're giving your patients to be able to advocate for themselves and use their voice. And if you're not there this election, that's fine. But keep asking yourself the questions of what else. What else should we be doing? What else could we be doing? And maybe for you, what it will look like is, you know, going to the church service for your patients because that's your way of engaging with them, you know? And, and that, that may be all you can do. I, I, I don't want anyone to listen to this and think if I'm not registering patients every day, I'm not doing the thing. That isn't at all how I necessarily feel. Um, but but I, I do want people to just be questioning and, and what Sarani said earlier, be curious. You know, ask yourself, what else can we be doing for our patients? And for me and for many of us, I think it is thinking about how we can be more civically engaged. I, I, I start from the same place that Stella starts with is a place of gratitude and of grace. So is gratitude to, this is an enormously challenging time for lots of people. It is in similar and in different ways, an enormously challenging time for those who provide healthcare. Um, and so I will always start with gratitude for what all of you are doing and the grace of, I, you know, I, you know, and many people are also juggling families and are taking, you know, taking care of young kids or taking care of, you know, their elderly parents or, you know, who have other response, you know, responsibilities. So just giving, you know, give yourself and others some grace, I think in, in what they can and cannot do. And then, so, you know, we didn't, Obviously, Stella and I did not, you know, didn't know you were going to ask this question or anything like that. But interesting, we kind of come to the same answers, which is, and then to just think about what matters to you. You know, what matters to you and what are the ways as a person, as a professional, as someone supporting patients, you know, in whatever way, what, what matters to you and, um, you know, I think part of the part of the thing that motivates a lot of us. There's uh, another New York City person, John Miller, who was I know a large part of the counterterrorism work. 
in New York, he was on another podcast, uh, Preet Bharara's podcast. And, you know, in fact, they were talking about the gun violence issue. And um, he, he said something that has really uh, stuck with me. He said, why do we keep asking, is this who we are? So after Sandy Hook, after Parkland, why do we keep asking the question, is this who we are? We know the answer. We should be asking ourselves, what are we going to do about it? Um, and that for me was part, that really resonated with me. And I thought, okay. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm just speaking for me. And I think for many people who are involved in this, to whatever extent they're involved in it, it is, I don't want to keep asking why it's this way. I want to ask myself, what can I and will I do about it? Mm-hmm. And if that is getting myself to the poll or to get my absentee ballot, and that is what I am going to do in this moment, thank you. So be it. If it's getting three or four other, my, my family members, thank you. And if it's getting your patients or your clinic staff or your church or wanting to join us, thank you. You know, I just, I yeah. guess that's, yeah. that would be my pitch. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you both for what you're doing um, and for this conversation and good luck on the efforts and we'll, we'll sure to spread the word as best we can. Um, and for those listening on the description, we'll have a link to the website and of course the bios for Stella and, and Serena, but, um, but also the link to the website and other information that might be helpful to you and um, appreciate everyone listening. Appreciate you guys for what you're doing. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. And if folks listening have ideas for a future podcast, please email me at robert.fields at mountsinai.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>